I am pressing a button. Okay, good. Right, so welcome to episode 53. This is right after recording 52, which is really... 54. What? It's 54. It's 54. Oh. Yeah, well, we're both really good with numbers, and you know how good I am with episode ordering. Um, Are you sure it's 54? I am sure. That would make sense, because we did no cash for questions in 53. Yeah, okay. Mm. Okay, yes, fair enough. I... You know, just in the break, I went to get lunch, and I got myself a Starbucks Frappuccino Mocha chocolate flavor drink. Uh Why did I do that, Darren? Why did I do that? It was like two pounds or something. It's ridiculous. I don't even care about coffee. I could have just, you know, made myself an instant thing and put cold milk in it. It would have been the same. (laughs) (laughs) And I was standing at the counter thinking... I've got this stupid Starbucks thing in my hand here. Can I put it back? But it would have been too ba- too embarrassing, wouldn't it? Once I was already in the line. You don't want to leave no. the line, do you? I do. I'm never afraid to embarrass myself. Oh, well, I couldn't do it. So I've ended up with a Starbucks Frappuccino. What an idiot. Ashamed <laughs> of yourself. It's not even from Starbucks. Well, as far as I know. Christ. I mean, what does that even mean? It's got a Starbucks logo on it, but I bought it in the co-op. So You're just a slave to commercialism. I am. I am. Yesterday was World Tuna Day. <laughs> did you eat any did tuna? They, did they have a good time? <laughs> I deliberately told people to not eat tuna, but it didn't work. Uh, they they yeah. ate all the tuna. <laughs> yeah. It's all gone. Yeah. Even the yellowfin tuna. Oh, we eat yellowfin tuna. They're fine. They're sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Until they're not. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the, they, they switched back and forth on the rhinos for a while, and then there were no, no rhinos <laughs> of any yeah. description. Yeah. Um, yes, I... Uh, I didn't eat any tuna yesterday, no. I don't eat tuna at all. No. Given up. Given up. And it's one of the few fishes I can eat, and I really like it as well. Hmm. Anyway, who are you? Can you get farm tuna? Uh, no. No, it's... There's sustainably managed pole and line stocks. But they say they're sustainably managed. Hmm. But they're sustainably managed... Until you've eaten too many of them. <laughs> and then <laughs> then they're saying, actually, because they never really report the yeah. stocks that they take. They lie. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that everyone involved in the tuna industry is bad, but they pretty much are. It's kind of why farming is maybe the only way to be sure. Yeah, but a p- giant pelagic hypercarnivores. I mean, this is technically a thing you probably shouldn't be eating anyway. Or, or it's a thing that you know doesn't have... It'd be like, you know, sustainably farmed t- wild tigers. Because <laughs> like, it is, because people just don't think, like, most of the fish that we love eating are top con. They're not just carnivores. They're carnivores that eat carnivores that eat carnivores. They're like hyper carnivores. So it's like, not only are they packed full of all the stuff you shouldn't be eating, like mercury and everything, but um, they're also, I don't want to say rare, because they're not yeah. rare, but the biomass terms there. What you what you're saying is we really we should be eating what? nematodes, nematodes <laughs> or whales. They're what? not so far up the trophic chain, well, are if, they? Uh, well, a lot of the animals that we that that we don't eat will be would be like the best and most sensible things to eat if only we could sustainably manage them. 
And if we could sustainably manage and harvest whales, now then there's then there's an ethical concern because I'm not sure how happy I'd be to eat whale. But um, given that I have concerns about eating chickens and pigs, but <clears throat> yeah. So there we go. Tetsu recommendation: <laughs> eat, eat whales. <laughs> That's not what they said. It's better than tuna. <laughs> Okay, good. I'm glad we got that nailed down. Do you want to do so? Oh, wait, we, we have to do the whole thing because people are going to hear these weeks apart. So, news, <laughs> news from the world of Darren and John? Uh, just at lunch? Yeah, yeah, uh. we just did the Frappuccino <laughs> thing. Yeah. Um, what stuff are we working on at the moment? Well, I'm still putting together the Tetsu giant textbook, which is mostly about fish. And uh, oh, I finally finished one of the technical projects on the back burner, though, which is about um, well, it's to do with the paleobiology of Mesozoic theropods. And uh, oh, it's so cool! Yeah, yeah. I'll have to tell you like off off air because it's so exciting. But lots of other things in various stages of preparation. That's always but, good for the podcast. You know, yeah, secret yeah. things, secret things that you can't secret tell them that, yeah. secret stuff that has implications for oh the whole Spinosaurus thing. I mean, that's everything been, you know is wrong. I wouldn't go that far. Don't but, do uh, anything until you can hear this secret, which we're not going to tell you now. Yeah, that's the way to go. Yeah, but but no, I'm not I, because I'm just working on the textbook. Um, I'm not really achieving much other stuff. Although, like I said, so Hunting Monsters just come out, a uh, dinosaur book coming out in, I think, September. This week, I get a teaching award. I'm going yeah. to a special ceremony thing where I have to wear a suit and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thanks for the recommendation of the suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't, they didn't want me turning up like that. Really? But, uh, yeah. Was it because it, it had too many fingers for a Tyrannosaurus? Mm. what they didn't like mm. technically inaccurate yeah <clears throat> yeah <laughs> okay so that's news um news from the world of john yeah nothing <laughs> <laughs> um news from the world of news since an hour and a half ago <laughs> yes right selena dons thank you um yeah, thanks to all the people who tweet and stuff. Richard Nicklin has reminded me of this uh, exciting discovery about the uh, origin of selenodons. A new study has apparently pushed selenodon origins back into the Upper Cretaceous, which I haven't looked at the paper. I'm only looking at some like online newsy thing. Uh, I don't know how surprising that is. I don't know how surprising that is, given that this is one of those things where it's generally thought that the radiation of placental mammals is supposed to have occurred round about the time of the KPG event anyway, isn't it? And people say, oh, they exploded in diversity right after the, um, you know, right after the Cretaceous uh, mass extinction event. And then you look at the error bar and it's like five million years. It's like, well, you could have, what if it happened? Because there are similar cases where people have made grandiose claims and then one fossil has been found. And, uh, like, in fish, for example. Now, <laughs> Oh, no, fish, you're not allowed to talk about them. There's this, there's this gargantuan radiation of teleos called acanthomorphs, mm. which basically includes all the spiny-finned actinopterygians. And all of the, like, weirdy body shape ones, there's this argument. Did they, if, did they diversify, very similar to the placental mammals, did they diversify just after the KPG event or... 
did they go back? Did they originate deeper in the Mesozoic? And the genetics seems to show, oh, it's an explosion after the KPG event. And people have looked at the fossil record and said, ha ha, yeah. And then, like last year, a unupper Cretaceous, oh dear, what was it? Whatever, there's one fossil found of one lineage deeply nested within this clade in the Cretaceous. Is it, well... That just screws with all of that because it shows it was all present in the Upper Cretaceous already. So this is this could be a somewhat analogous situation. Selenodons are cool. Selenodons, venomous Caribbean like ratty things. Which if you only ever see them in books and stuff, you think of them as I don't know big shrews that maybe you know a size of the length of your hand, but um, they're not this big. For, like, for our listeners, that's about what two foot long. Uh, with the tail, I guess that is probably about that size. Yeah, maybe 50, 60, 70 centimetres-ish. They're pretty awesome. And, uh, hey, if anyone ever wants to send a, send a load of cash for questions about selenodons and their kin, there's a whole load of fossil groups like aptonodontids and uh, stuff. I've been drawing a lot of them recently for the book. I think the question, like, uh, well, obviously the reason people are interested in this is whether there's explosive radiation before or after. Well, yeah. before wouldn't necessarily be explosive, but yeah, whether radiation happened before or after is is because were these this was the speciation in reaction to all the all the vacated niches niches all <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, but it, it, the more you think about these things the the trickier it gets to think about well, what does that actually mean so they could have had a you know uh What's the word? Their diversity could be high, but their disparity low, right? So there's lots of lineages, but they're not... The lineages are uh, derived earlier, yeah. but are they specialised as, as these different things yet? Um, and I think that's, the, in some ways, the, the more crucial question, you know. Well, indeed, especially given that the early members of all of the percental mammal and indeed all mammal lineages are all meant to have been like shrewy things. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, there were, there were thousands of species of little shrewy things. Yeah, we kind of yeah. would have guessed that, right? <laughs> no and, way. <laughs> oh, but that one's a stem perissodactyl. <laughs> yeah. That one's a stem Yeah, yeah oh, exactly. Um, the funny thing is about this study, uh, Alfonado Hernandez et al., uh, published in Mitochondrial DNA, that's a journal apparently, um, is reading, again, I'm reading a press report here rather than the actual paper, even though the paper's online, I can't be bothered to press on that link there. That's too difficult. Um, it makes it look as if the study is about uh, um, topology within one species of Selenodon. And yet this news article is all about, oh my God, Cretaceous ancestry. I wonder if it's like a little aside in the paper that they, that's the only thing they latched onto, as so often happens. Um, there's been tons and tons of dinosaur news lately. Loads of it. Uh, the, so much that I don't even know where to start. The only, the only, the only thing at the top of my mind is Sarmientosaurus, this new titanosaur represented by this fabulous 3D skull, yeah. beautiful skull, and beautifully, uh, um, you know, rendered in. Um, they CT'd it and everything. Looked at these various. Now this is another one of these studies. Those of you familiar with, you know, sauropod work will know there's been this controversy as to. And not just not just sauropods, it's been discussed in connection with pterosaurs and such as well. Head orientation, how semicircular canal orientation matches links to head orientation. Yeah. And they say in this paper that the fact that the semicircular canal is inclined somewhat relative to the horizontal means that the animal keeps its head like this when it's feeding. Nose down. Nose down. Yeah, yeah. nose down. 
they see when it's feeding. But the work that they're basing that on, which goes back decades to work done in the 50s on orientation of semicircular canals, the hor- specifically the horizontal semicircular canal, that work says that horizontal semicircular canal orientation tells you about resting pose and doesn't link with feeding. So maybe it means the animal rests like this, that's its like habitual relaxed pose, but that doesn't tell you anything about its feeding pose. And uh, again, well-known to dinosaur people, Myself, Matt Waddell, Mike Taylor, we published this paper where we argued that the range of variation that you see in horizontal semicircular canal orientation in extant animals is so variable that there's actually very little link between – you can't use that as your like base standard for what it tells you about yeah. head pose. So this is – and there's a bit of argument about this. It's not settled. But other interesting things about Sarmientosaurus is – if you look at the detailed, this skull is so well preserved and their description is, oh my God, it's incredible. The amount of detail on the palate and the uh, nary or you know, st- st- all the structures around the, the bony nostril. So much detail there. They really make it look, the the top of the um, the, the narys, the, the giant bony nostril openings, they've got these like weird little prong things in the middle of each of them. I can't recall this ever being described before. But it really makes it look as if there's some sort of weird that this is a support for some kind of like enlarged structure in the bony nostrils that aren't specifically anything to do with the fleshy, the fleshy not narrow, nothing to do with the actual nostril. Bear in mind, which is generally thought to be at the anterior end of the bony nostril openings anyway. So is this indicative of some other weird function of these people have always wondered why? Some sauropods, specifically macronarians, they call big nose sauropods. Why do they have such gigantic nostrils? One idea is that it's to do with, um, uh, you know, using them in respiration, uh, uh, using them in like heat loss and stuff. Yeah. Another one is that they have a function in um, vocalization and have like a are used as resonating chambers or something. Mm. And I kind of get the sort of feeling that there's something like that going on here. That this may be support for that. Yeah, yeah. Also, like whether they've got balloony sack things going on or something as well. Yeah, you know? which isn't mutually exclusive with with what I just said. Could yes, well be indeed both pitch. both at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing worth saying about Sarmientosaurus concerns the art. Now, there's this. Now, when new dinosaurs are published, there are some incredibly gifted, brilliant artists who are you know hopefully paid to do brilliant artwork. Have you seen the artwork accompanying the press, the press stuff on Sarmientosaurus? I don't want to be mean, but it's not really the best stuff. <laughs> it's not the best, the best dinosaur I've ever seen. Um, and this like keeps happening. It's like a new sauropod is announced, and the artwork that accompanies it is like, oh dear. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well. Uh, it is strange, isn't it, that we're still getting, like, so you've discovered a new sauropod, so you find the nearest, it often seems like you find the nearest person that can draw, <laughs> and you say to them, right, can you make a picture? Great, do it. It's, rather than finding someone that, I don't know, might know about sauropods or have a history with this sort of thing, and yeah, I do find that strange. There's no no feeling of professionalism or specialization in the minds of a lot of people when they're getting people to draw dinosaurs. Or indeed any prehistoric animal. 
Yeah, sometimes it's done in a rush. Yes. But, but sometimes it's, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I just, I just don't want to be, don't want to be mean to the, to the artist, but uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of the time, I, I don't really blame the artist. I, <laughs> I think people who uh, have an interest in describing this work, and you know, if you're going to put this much effort into um, CT scanning the skull and these enormously complicated reconstructions. The pictures matter, and I don't know why people don't think that. I, yeah. I, and I do think it's a... Which they do think, which, I, which uh, as, as we both know, that is actually an opinion that's held by quite a few scientists, that the pictures don't matter. <laughs> they don't. It's like, ah, uh, just who cares? Only kids look at it. <laughs> yeah. And, but I was, yeah, exactly. But uh, we've talked about this before. But, of course, if you're working, if you're working on dinosaurs... And you have any interest in communicating this to the public, which I think you kind of have to if you're working on dinosaurs, because otherwise, how do you justify what you do? Um, all the monies. Yeah, all the money, exactly. Well, but how would you justify society spending money on this, right? That's the question, right? Why, why are hey, we spending money on this? Hey, I just do what I do. I don't care about the rest of you. Yeah, exactly. But I think you have to say, well, you know, because it's interesting and people should know about this stuff, right? And... But when you've got a picture, that's like 50 or 60% of the information that most people will take from this. Mm. <laughs> and just not to care about that is, wow. Yeah, there you go, though. Also, I think a lot of people, I don't know, I think they don't have the visual sense of spotting what's wrong. See what I mean? A lot of people can't see that a reconstruction is actually pretty poor. Um, I've noticed this a lot. Yeah, yeah. You, you, something that's objectively okay. Not talking about this reconstruction of Sarmientosaurus necessarily, but there are p pictures that are objectively bad. It's not just an opinion. It's like, no, can't you see they put the eye in the wrong place? The arm is coming off the shoulder at the wrong angle. That kind of stuff. And and people say, oh, I think it's quite good. <laughs> I think it's all right. It's like, no, can't you tell? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've met many, uh, I'm speaking from experience, having had to work with people who are completely incapable of uh, rendering the reconstruction of anything, the image of an animal. Um, so, so, yes. yes. Kind of visual illiteracy, I think, is going on a little bit, which is interesting, but yeah, it's a shame. It is a shame. Um, right, so is that the news from the world uh, of news? I just mention also this gigantic study that's just been published in PeerJ by Martinez Cura, this uh, enormous study of archosauromorphs and uh, their phylogeny. Um, as Cura has been working on proterosuchids, mm -hmm. proterosuchus and oh God, I've forgotten the other one's name, Campsosuchus, these famous hook-snouted um, uh, permo-triassic archosauriforms and uh, and this giant uh, phylogenies it's huge hundreds of characters and really impressive and um and it's another study there's, there was another one published a years ago by um uh sterling nesbit i think which um oh god my memory i'm, I'm now worried whether it's the right right author um 
But um, it's it's a, it's a big study, lots of characters, discusses everything at great length and you know, big trees, and um, essentially, essentially supports what we might regard as like the standard, um, like topology, the the sort of you know sta- our standard understanding of archosaur form and archosaur morph and archosaur, um, yeah, the shape of the phylogeny. So 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 kind of disappointing that you'd say oh there's no surprises there really i mean i'm sure there are a few little ones but uh, in general this is strong support for our existing understanding of the phylogeny of these animals mm. well yeah so disappointing results there <laughs> <laughs> um i suppose there's one thing i w- want to mention is the sakamoto oh yeah yeah that paper mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think we should get into it now, but uh, it's it's a paper in support of the idea that dinosaurs were declining pre-KPG um, extinction. Um, it's based on statistical analysis of speciation rates. Um, I think, and I have a I have a lot of problems with this paper. Mm, you're not the only one. Yeah, um, and I think we should do at some point an episode on the extinction because it's an interesting topic that I don't think we've ever really got into in a big way mm. with proper um, because we were often a little bit unprepared for it, you mm. know, like we like we talked about Bigfoot. If you're actually if we're actually a bit more prepared for it, I, I'd quite like to do. We have talked about it, of course, but often it's come up in a different conversation. Um, as an aside, yeah. As an aside, and I think it's a it's a really interesting topic. Um, uh, so yeah, I just wanted to bring that up in that uh, yeah as a future marker. Yep. You know, I've worked with Manabu Sakamoto. I like him, but uh, but yeah, I I don't agree with the take on this study at all, and 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 I can't help but thinking that this may be a bit too much of a lay perspective. But so there. We mustn't discuss this at length, but their basic argument is that if you look at the number of origination times versus extinction times, that there were less species origination times happening like during the Cretaceous, and therefore the dinosaurs as a whole were on a downward trend. But analogy is it's quite well known among paleontologists that the Miocene was the golden age for mammals. There were like, in America today, there's like, I don't know, like three or four peccaries, but in the Miocene, there's like 20 or 30 peccaries, you know, something ridiculous. And you could say, and that's the same for all groups, camels, horses, rhinos, blah, blah, blah. There's loads and loads and loads of them. Now, I don't know this for certain, and I'm not aware of a study that's looked at it, but I reckon if you looked at the same thing for mammals, you would say that there were so many origination events in the Miocene that since then it's all been downhill, so yeah. that mammals are becoming extinct. So would you today now say that mammals, mammals are on the way out? And I don't think you would. No. Because there's so many lineages that, yeah, they're reduced relative to the Miocene doesn't mean that they're going to go ex- that there's any, any hint of them becoming extinct. Yes, um, I agree. I, think I can't is, help thinking it's the same as that. Yeah, I agree. I think that is the essential criticism. Why would this trend continue indefinitely until they're extinct? And indeed, with dinosaurs, we have one group where we know they had this same pattern, birds. They were yeah. apparently declining. Yeah, and look, obviously they're extinct. That, you know. <laughs> so oh, yeah, we yeah. get a complete reversal in the the one group of dinosaurs we know did survive the KPG extinction event, the whole thing um, 
yes. which reverses. So, and that, yes, r- reminds me. There's just this new study out a couple of days ago about um, extinction and survival of birds across the KPG. Thank you, Hanukkah, for reminding us about this. Uh, I haven't read the paper, but it's some study saying that the uh, trophic adaptability, the, the ecological adaptability of presumably just crown birds, neonathenes, um, the fact that they could exploit uh, seeds and stuff relative to other dinosaur lineages gave them a competitive edge and allowed, well, no, 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 did not give them. It allowed them to survive across the... Mm across this stressful time, whereas other dinosaur groups didn't. I think intuitively that sounds quite um, appealing and it's similar to what people have said before anyway. Yeah. Uh, I've certainly said that it's a combination of like small size, because of small size metabolism and the kind of lifestyles they lead, crown birds are breeding faster and reaching maturity faster and stuff than other dinosaur groups, including other bird groups. But they're also more flexible and adaptable in terms of what they can eat we know lots of them have got diet switching they can eat insects when they want to or during certain times of year but they can eat seeds and uh, fruits and things yeah at other times and also they need absolutely less you know in absolute terms they need less food to sustain a viable population than you know and they can fly yeah and they can fly so they can yeah cover a lot of range to find that food yeah but this study seems to be saying that seed eating is is an important event and uh, yeah, well, I can I'm always I'm wary about the saying that there's one, you know, one, one thing, thing. But I would yeah. certainly say it's an important thing. Yeah, because seeds survive even if all the plant cover dies for a year. You know, there's still seeds around, right? So yeah, um, that does make intuitive sense. Okay, so let's move on to cash for questions because we've got a lot of cash for questions. All right, you ready for cash for questions? I am ready. You're ready. <laughs> Okay, so this is from John Perry from statedclearly.com. Mm, I've heard of that website. Yeah. Do you think that's his legal name? Yes. John, is that your legal name? John Perry from statedclearly.com. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Brazil's president recently declared wars on 80s Egypti. Egypti? Egypti, Egypti, whatever. Egypti, yeah. yeah. Um, are humans the only tetrapods that have acti- actively attempt to annihilate other species' clades? I once heard that orangutans hate and try to kill snakes every time they see one. If so, this would be an example. Of yeah. what? I sp- oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They're constantly pursuing and killing members of an outs- outside clade. They have little desire to eat the victims and will attack, e- even if the snake is not directly bothering or threatening them. Yes, so... Uh, yeah... How many how many animals are aggressive to the point of <clears throat> killing other animals with no reason? Yeah, just backtrack a little bit. Edie's Egypti is the yellow fever mosquito. Oh, okay, but you yeah. probably worked that out anyway, right? Um, okay, so so we're talking about are there animals that declare, as it were, war on the members of other were other species, other groups? Um, John already gives us an example: the fact that he's talking about uh, orangutans. Uh, killing snakes which now if there was uh, a a given orangutan living in the same area for long enough and if it kills every snake it sees and this is conceivable then you could say that you that they have a snake eradication plan which is not that different from what people do i mean you know people eradicate rats and snakes and uh, verminous insects and stuff. Yeah. Uh, this is not unique to orangutans. We know that um, of other primates that will uh, 
uh, kill snakes on site. Chimpanzees definitely will as well. Gerald Durrell talks about uh, uh, Chumley, the uh, the the chimp who who just like wouldn't settle, wouldn't be happy unless uh, a, a, an animal, he th- an object he thought was a snake, had been disposed of or or removed. Um, and and my um, okay, so there's a case in. At the moment, all the cases I'm thinking of concern primates. So primates going out and destroying the members of, of other uh, other animals. There was this recent... We know that uh, chimps, chimpanzees, have there, there have been like big troops that have split into two and have then gone to war with the other one and deliberately like eradicated the members of the other troop by like covert guerrilla actions. <laughs> chimpanzees practicing guerrilla warfare. But... Um, <laughs> Um, obviously, that's with it, that's intraspecific. There is also a case of a chimpanzee population that basically made a monkey species locally extinct, but that was because they were hunting them to to eat them. That wasn't like analogous to killing to killing snakes. He's specifically John is specifically asking about annihilation. Uh, actively attempt to annihilate. Well, that that could fit within the remit of his question because that is active annihilation and that was just through mismanagement. Ordinarily, when you talk about predators um, um, hunting, taking out members of another species... uh, Yeah, because I feel like this is a bit tricky, isn't it? I I do think that it has to be not for other gain because otherwise yeah. the question's just well i'm sure predators have overhunted in many areas and many times in the past right and certainly birds uh domestic cats killing birds would fit that um you, know, you don't get the feeling that they're trying to annihilate the birds Those bastard spiders <laughs> ate all my flies yeah. <laughs> um, in the house so um yeah so i think it, and i think this is Ah, but he's here. Yeah, he's also saying last line. They have little desire to eat the victims. Uh, he's talking about yeah, primates versus snakes. But oh, there's lots of cases of um, uh, like big predators killing smaller predators, and not necessarily to eat them, just because they like killing them. So like wolves killing coyotes, um, red foxes killing kit foxes, tigers killing dolls. Um, all that kind of stuff. There's there's many many cases of that, of big members of yeah, cat bear dog family, killing smaller species, uh, lions versus hyenas. That's a classic example. There's loads of cases of um, yeah, lions deliberately kind of going on an anti hyena crusade, and individual lions that that have such an agenda against hyenas that whenever they see one, they'll go to great trouble. You know, running over tens of meters and swimming across rivers and you know doing a bit of climbing stuff specifically to get that hyena and just to just to kill it not to eat it just to kill it so that's a good example and i think that yeah i think that does fit the definition because it's sort of killing for a gain in another way right so you're the reason we are killing um or attempting to eradicate mosquitoes is because they spread disease so they're harming us in some way and i i'm sure lions feel like you know, those bastard hyenas <laughs> stealing our food. Um, and so it, it's very similar. I think it's the same sort of motivation. Yeah. The interesting thing is uh, in, with this question, so I think we've got a few examples. What sort of 
motivation can we ascribe? You know, are they are the chimps simply reacting to a snake like, oh, that's a snake, kill it? Or do they think, oh, if we kill a lot of snakes, there won't be any snakes around here? Well, we don't know, but I'm guessing it's the former. That it's like, oh, snake bad, kill. Snake bad, kill snake, snake gone. Oh, another snake, kill that one as well. Yeah, but then, so why don't they do it? Well, yeah, I guess this is but the then, thing. Because there's then. lots of irritating species, which you just wouldn't bother. You might, you know, <laughs> there are, there's going to be so many of them. There's, um, so there's, there are cases where chimps have, again, gone out of their way to be like almost human-like in how nasty they've been to other species. Like some, there's a case where some chimps knew that a leopard had a den and the, the den was a, um, in a deep, uh, the end of a tunnel. And uh, a couple of chimps went into the tunnel. Uh, presumably they kept watch and made sure the mother leopard had disappeared for a while. But even if she hadn't gone, what a risk to take. They yeah. commando style, just like the Bigfoots I was talking about earlier, they, uh, a previous episode, <laughs> they crawled along the tunnel and uh, found the little baby leopard cubs and smashed them to death. Went into, went into her uh, um, yeah, den to, uh, to deliberately kill them. There's a case in the TV series Big Cat Diary where there's, there's a... There's a, a pride of lions. I think this is. I think this is um, Tanzania. There's a p- bunch of lions that in the TV series are called the Marsh Lions, the Marsh Pride, and that's not their real name, but it's the name they used in the TV series. I've forgotten their real name. And, what do you um, mean their real name? Well, this this is a studied lion pride that's got a real local name. It's called like the Okavango Group One or something. Okay, not but what whatever. They, not in what they the, call themselves. They, <laughs> There's a, there's a graphic novel about the adventures of a set of lions that are trapped in Baghdad during the Gulf War. Anyway, um, um, these marsh lions mostly predate on Cape buffalo. And Cape buffalo are formidable animals and also famously vindictive. And the buffalo are minding their business in the marsh and the lions ambush them and try and kill a calf. But the other buffalo help it and it escapes. And um, and then the next day, the big daddy buffalo in the herd, there's like three or four of them, come back to that same spot because they know there's baby lions there. And they find the baby lions. They actually didn't kill them. They did their best. They're like you know, hooking up um, big tussocks of grass and everything and chucking lion cubs in the air. Um, it really did without... Okay, there is always the risk of anthropomorphization. But... Um, um, it really does look as if they've come back for revenge and it's uh we're going to take you out you yeah. liony little mothers there's <laughs> um it, it, sorry talking about carnivores versus carnivores or carnivorans versus carnivorans some of the predation like say like say a leopard killing a uh caracal or an african wildcat some of that does fall within the remit of what we call intraguild predation. The fact that it's perfectly normal. If you're a lion, yes, you eat hares and gazelles and baby zebras, but yes, you also eat lynxes and foxes. That's just the thing you do. Intraguild predation is the thing. But I don't, we're not talking about that here. We are talking about, yeah, lions deliberately hunting down hyenas, 
chimpanzees deliberately going and strangling baby leopards. Yeah. Um, there's a case where uh, in captivity, which is slightly different, but some dolphins lived in an oceanarium. Uh, is that the right word? A big tanky thing? A big aquarium, whatever? Yeah. yeah. Some captive dolphins, a pod of dolphins, were kept with a shark, and they lived together for years, and this is okay. You know, dolphins are quite used to living with sharks and they can read their body language and stuff. But one of the dolphins became pregnant and uh, as like the night before she was due to give birth, the shark was tossed out of the pool and killed, um, which uh, is written about in the dolphin books as if it's a premeditated, oh, better get rid of the shark because yeah. <laughs> there's a placenta in the water. It could go wrong. And uh, if this story is true, it may not be true because it comes from a source that's not most, most reliable on dolphin behavior. Lily, those of you who know dolphin literature. But, um, um, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess the thing is that a lot of these things don't seem cognitively outside the realms of plausibility, right? Uh, dolphins are pretty smart animals. They probably, the day before, well, maybe not, but they might, they might think, oh, you know, I'm going to give birth, probably should make sure it's as safe as possible. Yeah, let's get rid of the shark. Yeah, I mean, I can see dolphins thinking that. And the revenge of the um, the buffalo, um, yeah, why not? It's sort of like an extension of territorial behavior or something, you know, like, yeah, yeah. lion's bad, let's just get rid of them, huh? And that's not a one-off. There's there's lots yeah. of cases. You can find amazing videos online. There's some really famous ones where um, there's one, I think it's called Battle at Kruger, where uh, it's it's just unbelievable. There's there's a bunch of buffalo drinking from the edge of a, a water hole, and um, now have I got this right? It basically involves it involves no okay yeah. Buffalo come down to water hole. There's a lion ambush. Lions are hiding. Lions come out. Lions get a buffalo, baby buffalo, and there's really quite a dramatic chase scene, which ends up with some of the animals falling into the water. The Lions are trying to kill the buffalo calf. And bear in mind, it's not a baby one. It's like a human-sized calf. It's a big animal. Um, as the lions are trying to kill it, you know, strangling it, which takes a long time. It can take like half an hour or so. Um, the, you'll see the lions like jump away from the edge of the water for no reason at all. Turns out there's a crocodile grabbing hold of the <laughs> buffalo calf, trying to pull it back into the water. And there's this tug of war between the crocodile and the lions. Eventually, the lions win. The crocodile goes away. And then, so then they carry on trying to kill the buffalo calf. But then the rest of the buffalo herd comes back. All I've of seen them. this one, yeah, right. And they're like, "Leave that calf alone," and it's still alive. And a fight ensues. And the uh, again, it's big, massive male buffalo lead. You know, plow in and literally chucking lions up into the air. Literally tossing them in a sort of cartwheel up in the air. And the lions. Uh, reluctantly eventually you know give up and the baby survives mm. and despite all of that so far as you can tell so far as you can tell from the video it's okay it probably had like a dislocated larynx or something but um it seems to be all right and it escapes yeah, no broken and legs or anything yeah. yeah and and so they came back for that baby so you can imagine within the context of that kind of behavior that on another day they might do something like yeah Let's go to the water hole first. If there's any lions there, we'll trample them to death. <laughs> Which so, does seem to be a thing, yeah. Yeah, and I think this gets to the point of... Because uh, the question, if we go back to that for a second... Oh, yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> does this sort of 
um, is this an act of war? You know, is there some intention to eradicate? And in those cases, I think, well, sort of. There is an int- there's a there's a second order intention there, right? To get rid of those lions, right? And I yeah. think that is, I think that does qualify. And I think it's a very similar motivation to what people have when they do similar things. Well, when somebody, or as far does, as we can tell, yeah, as far as we, yeah, absolutely. Uh, when people or other animals do a thing that starts a war they're not starting a war they're doing a thing like we're going to assassinate that guy because he's a problem or we're going to we're going to kill these people so we can take that patch of land they're not saying we're going to start this complex series of events which will then last for tens of years and will end in bloodshed and the deaths of millions right they're doing a a one a one event in virtually all cases, not all cases, but virtually all cases, they're doing one thing. Uh, so I think in that case, it's exactly similar. It's like if it did lead to a, a centuries-long conflict between lions and buffalo, well, <laughs> well, then so be it. But on that day, on that day, they're doing it to protect, to to retaliate against that group or to protect that individual. So, so yeah, that's the same as assassinating. Archduke Ferdinand, or you know, that, yeah, you know those kinds of things. So yes, they they would be proverbial acts of war. Yeah. So I yeah. think the answer is yes, and there's even very similar, as far as we can tell, motivation going on. So yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking. I'm thinking of corvids as well. There's specific cases of corvids coming in and deliberately killing or fatally wounding other corvid species. We have uh, a magpie nest in the front garden. I've spoken about them in previous episodes. In some episodes of the Tetsu podcast, you can hear them in the background. That's how influential they have been. And a carrion crow comes to their nest and destroys, tries to take apart their nest. So that's, and there's no other reason for that crow to be there. It doesn't come there for food. It doesn't come there to, you know, just play with the magpies or irritate them. It comes there to destroy their nest. And that's a thing that's like recorded across lots of corvid species so that's exactly the same just shout out for corvids there so mm. yep so you were saying okay so yeah i think that's answered and uh yep thanks john for that question now we got a question from barry dean how many times have given how many times land-based tetrapods have returned to the water whale seals ichthyosaurs turtles etc why is it the birds never have is it their anatomy or just bad luck related why do birds why have no birds become viviparous? Viviparous. 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 Um, viviparous. Um, the the yeah. question as phrased is a bit odd, Barry, isn't it? Because, of course, birds have returned to the water several times. Um, penguins. Loons, grebes, Hesperornithines. Hesperornithines. There's probably another couple in there. Orcs. There we go. So, how do we tackle this question then? Well, I think we start by saying, thank you for your question, Barry. Thanks for and, your question, uh, Barry. Um, so, what do we mean by, what do we mean when we say that an animal has returned to the water? Well, well, Barry mentions ichthyosaurs, and ichthyosaurs, like cetaceans, are 100% aquatic. They never come onto land, and they're fully adapted for feeding in the water, blah, 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 breeding and breeding in the water, whereas uh, uh, seals and turtles and many other groups that we regard as aquatic are still dependent on the land and you know give birth on land, or lay eggs on the land, uh, whatever, move on the land. So when we look, but, but we still regard them as like... <laughs> 
do we do we do just there's a bit of terminological issue here do we just do we regard them as fully aquatic fully marine we do because we still say that yeah you can be do all your primary uh things in the aquatic milieu but yet you're still able to rest breed feed on land i think if you um if you were obligated to use dry habitats for something then you're not fully aquatic i would say that is a you are predominantly well, aquatic or something like this but you know if you yeah. if you have to reproduce on land then you know yeah but there isn't but there isn't a resolved issue here of terminology because in biology people routinely refer to like you describe birds as aquatic if they feed and do pretty much all of their stuff in the water but of course they're not as you say they're not obligatorily aquatic because they still rest and breed on land there are there are a couple that breed on like ice or sea ice and so technically never come onto land but I don't know. I think the fact that it's ice is a bit of a get out clause there. If yeah. it was floating, if it was floating rock, then <laughs> they'd, they'd use it. Um, so, but this is a very long winded way of saying that, that there's a whole list of birds, as we've already mentioned, that are as fully aquatic as lots of the other things that we regard as aquatic. Seals, right? turtles, etc. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there are birds that only come to land to lay their eggs which they only do like, you know, once, maybe twice a year. So, but I guess what Barry's getting at is why aren't there kind of... Uh, I think fully aquatic is fine because you can say aquatic without being fully aquatic. So Okay, yeah, all right. So fully aquatic. Go with that then. Uh, so, so things like penguins, yeah, loons, grebes, the extinct Hesperonithines, the extinct Platopterids, flightless orcs, which are all extinct now. Um, yeah, they're spending as much time in the water as, say, seals, and you know, or maybe even more so. I mean, uh, coming on land to breed and and molt and rest and stuff. Um, but speculative, in terms of speculative evolution, why haven't birds evolved into like giant? Why aren't they giant whale-like birds or ichthyosaur-like birds? Maybe that's what Barry's getting at, mm. and. Uh, well, he says, why have no birds become viviparous? Well, one of the main, um, one of the sort of things about being a bird is, so far as we can tell, they, they can't, or well, at least they haven't yet, become viviparous. Several reasons proposed for that. Um, uh, I mean, it might be that they haven't done this because the, if you like, the ecological space kind of hasn't opened for them, so long as they, so long as there have been aquatic birds, there have been big aquatic reptiles and or big aquatic um, mammals. They haven't ever been in empty seas, as it were. But, but even if that condition were to exist, is it that you wouldn't get giant whale-like uh, seagoing birds like the vortex in Dougal Dixon's? after man, which of course everyone is already thinking of. I guess the question could be broadened out as well. We don't seem to get this in theropods in general, right? Mm. Um, whereas you might expect some of them to become more aquatic and maybe even fully aquatic. It doesn't happen. It's quite interesting. 
And I wonder whether it's just a disadvantageous start so they don't ever get to fill those. I mean, so similar to what you were saying, they're just... The niches have already been filled, but maybe birds start with something that's a little bit behind other animals that makes it more difficult. And so, for example, one thing I can think of is that their their um, air sac system, you know, being much more floaty than other animals, mm. makes diving trickier. Yeah, you know, and now not impossible. Obviously, some birds do it, and well, lots of birds do it. Yeah, the ones that have actually like substantially reduced the air sac system a yeah, ton. Yeah, you have to start. You have to do that to get to where other animals are already at. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So, I uh, also think I think whenever this has been discussed a lot, specifically in the literature on speculative evolution, there's this. Uh, I'm trying to think of cases. This has been this whole. What I'm about to say, I'm putting this back to, back to front, is. Uh, we tend to think that certain things are like inevitabilities in evolution. And a similar example is the evolution of humanoid creatures. Mm. You know how whenever people talk about like intelligent dinosaurs, they're automatically imagining dinosaurs shaped like people. It's a similar thing here. We kind of think that if birds were to become fully aquatic, then isn't it inevitable that you would end up with bird-like, sorry, with whale-like birds? But um, that is us assuming that a certain pathway is the way in which uh you know would would prove advantageous in the history of a lineage whereas in fact you know the the, bio, the biomass of seabirds orcs petrels gulls those things you know that they are among the most abundant vertebrates on the planet you know okay it's been substantially uh influenced by by people of course mm. but the numbers of orcs and petrels like billions and billions and billions of the things. It's like whatever they're doing, uh, the way they're able to exploit the sea has proved one of the biggest success stories ever in the history of vertebrates. Uh, when I wrote the, the petrol series for Tetsu a couple of years ago now, one of the first things we ever discussed on the podcast, petrols actually, um, you look at some of the photographs of some of these like North Pacific populations of petrols. Can you imagine from the deck of a ship to the horizon, the surface of the water and the sky filled with more birds than you can count. It's like the numbers of these, of these animals is obscene, just ridiculous, like bigger than the biggest herds of mammals you can imagine. The biomass, you're talking about thousands of tons, thousands of tons of these, of these animals. So my point here is that in adapting to that way of life, this ability to move quickly, to exploit incredibly uh, energy-rich prey and to, to breed you know, around the fringes of these rich environments and to be able to move from coastal environments right into the heart of these places and to dive deep and to be insulated in polar temperatures, this set of adaptations that all these seabirds have got, we shouldn't be thinking that if birds become marine they need to evolve into whales. It's like, this is the way to go. This is the thing to do. Do you see what is Am I making sense here? Like, Yeah, um, whales do, you, you are. Um, I'm just trying to think, well, I don't know very much about this, but whales are exploiting a particular food source, aren't they? I mean, I'm talking about burning whales here. Um, so they're feeding on very, very small things, right? Krill. Are there other groups of animals that feed on these as efficiently uh well loads of seabirds are, are krill eaters are they 
As a, yeah, loads of them, yeah. Like loads of penguins are, loads of petrels are, loads of orcs are. Um, obviously, they're not doing it in the same way. They're not filter feeding you know, yeah. <laughs> whole swarms of things. They're ca- catching them a, a few at a time. But, uh, is that is not their is it their primary? Uh, yeah, th- there's a whole load of them that are specialised krill eaters. I didn't realise that. Yeah, there's loads of them that do yeah. that. Yeah, so I think well, okay, in that case, there's a that's a good answer then. That whale form is a mammal, <laughs> is a mammalian solution to that problem that birds have solved in a different way, mm. and therefore you wouldn't expect them to get to go like that. There's no pressure for them to become fully aquatic because what they have works pretty pretty well. As you're saying, yeah. in fact, biomass-wise, they're massively successful. Yes, it fits in with what we were also saying a couple of episodes back about the the sheer numbers of uh, of some of these animals as as the normal condition of mm. modern times, as in like you know Pleistocene, Holocene times. It was it was normal for you know you read any of the accounts about the great orc colonies around the uh, the UK and. Um, uh, Nova Scotia and stuff, yeah. So many, so many birds that people didn't believe it was ever possible to exploit them. And of course, yeah. <laughs> it, sure, it sure was. Man one, nature zero, yet again. Yet again. But um, <laughs> but the numbers, are, you know. Okay, penguins are in decline. All penguins are in decline. But even so, you look at these images of a daily penguin colonies and even emperor and king penguin colonies. You're talking about like a lot of animals that are okay. Maybe. They're constrained to terrestrial breeding. Now, Barry kind of asks why that is. Um, one possibility, one possible, one possibility which which matches with everything we've already said is that if it don't, if it ain't broke, you know, it's like this system is working fine. This ability to come back to to go out and exploit rich resources and come back and keep behaving in that way that's working fine for them um but is it that they are constrained because uh something to do one one possibility is that um i've I've always been kind of had a very fairly vague understanding of this but this idea that during development baby birds derive calcium from the eggshell and it's therefore very difficult for them to give up on having shelled eggs um there's 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 like five proposed explanations as to why birds and a few other groups can't give up on hard-shelled eggs. But uh, it does seem to be quite difficult to, to reverse the groups that have got it. And we, we covered this when we, we were asked the same question in connection with um, Thalatosuchians, seagoing crocodiliforms or crocodilomorphs, uh, many episodes back. Why haven't, why haven't they become viviparous? And in that case, it was like, well, maybe they have, and we just haven't got a good enough fossil record. So either way... <laughs> But, um, yeah, and I guess the the main problem with not being viviparous in the ocean is that you have to crawl onto land, and therefore you're probably fairly size-constrained. To be an efficient swimmer and also to be able to haul yourself up onto a beach or something, you know, there's probably a, a limit to the size you can get there. Um, big seals are probably pushing it, right? Yeah, yeah biggest bigger seals they don't get much bigger than five six meters which is big enough but um yeah walruses and elephant seals yeah um and some things in the ocean well say whale fe- feeding strategies but that i mean that's so specialized right this this huge 
really giant seagoing animals. They're very charismatic, so everyone knows them, but they're vastly outnumbered by the things that aren't that big. Mm. Um, so the disadvantage of having to to um, lay your eggs on land might be relatively small. It might even it's probably even has some advantages that we don't really know about, and therefore, you know, like a lot of these things, we kind of think, well, it just seems simpler if you give birth just in the ocean. You never have to come out. That's so much simpler. Why don't <laughs> they just do that? Well, yeah, but this, it's so complicated that you just don't know how many disadvantages and disadvantages there are to that. And therefore, even though it seems simpler, it might not be any better. Mm. Um, and in fact, I bet it isn't for a lot of these animals. And therefore, the selective pressure probably just isn't there, unless you're going to go for some sort of giant size, right? Where that yeah. literally might become an impossibility. Uh, the other thing I just thought of is, of course, that you've got to be able to move around on land and in water, which means that you've got to be somewhat... Um, you're, you can't specialise in your locomotor ability as much, right? So mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about ichthyosaurs and the, the way they're shaped and the way their paddles work and stuff. Difficult to see how they would move about on land, right? <laughs> they they wouldn't have the strength, so you end up with this. Yeah, exactly. So um, the strength in the right places. You've got to have some sort of leverage on the ground that you can push or something like this. That yeah. just waveform motion, especially side to side, doesn't <laughs> doesn't, oh, yeah, yeah. doesn't yeah. help you. So this is another thing that makes birds uh, somewhat different from uh, aquatic mammals and reptiles, in that you can be a bird and fly and walk and also swim and dive. And as we've learned within recent decades, you know, people used to think that all the diving birds, the flighted diving birds, various petrels, gannets, orcs, guillemots and razorbills, it was thought... That's phone. It was thought that their, um, that they, their diving was in the, couple, the, the first couple of metres mm. of the sea. And it's not. It's like... 40 meters down, 60 meters down, 100 meters down. So it's like these things, these animals are are there are yeah quite advantaged uh competitively advantaged relative to the uh obligatorily aquatic mammals and reptiles, I would say. Birds are an yeah. interesting example in this respect as well because uh tying into the pterosaur discussions we've had, you know, their locomotor because they don't, because they have so many modes, they might be constrained in this other respect. I mean, this is sort of what people are thinking about pterosaurs, right? The bird launch, uh, the way birds launch, the fact that they can't use their hind legs in flying or don't use their hind legs in flying mm -hmm. means that they are limited in size compared to the biggest pterosaurs. So if there was a valuable niche to be had in the, you know, um, bigger than, let's say, 30 kilo um, range of flying animals, that they might not be able to exploit it. But that that would probably be a pretty specialized niche, as we think Ash Darkard's, you know, we don't know. But um, maybe you just don't need to get that big. There's not really a lot of selective pressure for that. But, yeah, so birds do have the, these odd constraints anyway, even the flying ones. Because if you think about this, that um, flying is sort of swimming in the air, right? Mm, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, yeah, yeah kind yes. of is, yeah. yeah. 
I don't I don't think there's any animals that have successfully become fully what's the word um aeronautic 100 percent uh, yeah so the, yeah they just give birth to oh well there's in constables the sea jellies but um <laughs> <laughs> sorry these imaginary sky beasts yeah. um no yeah so mm. birds are, live with that in that respect and they yeah i don't know i'm kind of rambling here but so yeah locomotive specialization is one thing that <laughs> You know, it's an advantage to a f- going fully aquatic is that you can completely specialize in that one locomotor mode. Yes. But that is not a disadvantage to birds in many respects, you know. I would say that Barry got his money's worth there. Yep. And uh and if you and I write down everything <laughs> we've just said, tidy up, chuck in a few diagrams. You know, there hasn't been any I was trying to find a figure on biomass global biomass of seabirds. Mm-hmm. versus global biomass of marine mammals. And I know it's very difficult to decide what factor you should use as determining success. But as as good a, as good a thing as any, that strikes me as one thing that's like, you know, not a bad marker. And that I do think that we're onto something here that it's like, yeah, you shouldn't think, you shouldn't think that the best way of being aquatic is to be a whale. It's like there are orcs and petrels. Yeah. That's where the action is. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So there we go. Okay. All right. right, So this is from Joseph Corley. Thank you, Barry. Yep. Thank you, Barry. This is from Joseph Corley. Um, This is actually a similar question. Um, most large diverse tetrapod clades such as rodents, bats, squamates, passerines have radiated to fill a large amount of ecological niches. Frogs and toads are equally as diverse and yet they are more they are mostly generalized predators on invertebrates. Is there a reason that specialized shell crushers, grazers, pollinators, and macrovertebrate predators have not arisen amongst the neurons? What limitation could this group have that prevent them from evolving to fill the niches that the aforementioned clades have succeeded in doing? Why don't frogs <laughs> get off their lazy asses <laughs> and become grazers? Yeah, stupid frogs. Um, yeah, well, this is this this really yeah is uh, similar to uh, a question we were asked several. We dealt with a few episodes back about why don't birds? Why haven't birds done all the things that like other dinosaur groups have done? And similar answer. I think it's like essential limitations of ancestral bow plan. So, anurans, frogs and toads are really very unusual animals. Um, Body, this weird body shape, which, uh, so super short vertebral column, they may have only seven or eight or nine vertebrae. This hyper-reduced pelvic girdle, which is basically just a U-shaped piece of bone with like a strut dividing the U in half. These very unusual hind limbs with with a like particularly elongate ankle segment, uh, strong adaptation for saltation, and this very reduced skull with like loads of elements normally present in vertebrates completely missing, generally with strongly reduced or absent dentition and uh, a projectile tongue and orbits that tend not to be roofed dorsally so that they can use the the orbits the sorry the eyeballs can project above the surface of the head and the eye, mm. the eyeballs can also be projected down at the floor of the mouth to help push things down the throat and a bunch of other things and no ribs no freaking mm. ribs mm. so um th- that's your ancestral basic frog body plan 
Now, given that they're adapted for you know, projectile feeding and reduced dentition and reduction of skull bones and all the, lots of other things as well mean that neurons are generally specialized for uh, animal livery, eating little, in, little insects and that sort of thing. And the whole body shape is generally specialized for saltation. Those lists of things mean that they work best at small body size. They're not good at um, carrying like, lots of weight. And it's kind of hard to think how you would take that general bow plan and then do things like turn it into... Not, it's not impossible. Of course, you could imagine ways in which you could imagine a whole list of novelties arising and them becoming big grazers, pollinators, macro predators. <laughs> but uh, in a world filled with lots of animals, many of which are good at eating frogs and toads, um, plus the whole... Um, now, the reproductive strategies evolved by neurons are the most diverse of any tetrapod group. Basically, you name it, there are frogs, or frogs and toads that do it, like big clusters of eggs, small clusters of eggs, parental care, no parental care, uh, uh, keeping of babies in vocal sacs and stomachs and brooding them on the back, keeping them in pouches, keeping them in special little ponds, carrying babies around, putting them in, feeding them special eggs um all, all these you know lists of amazing things they've done yeah but so so it's not fair to say that they're like fundamentally constrained but kind of in a way yeah in a way there's kind of like a list of things stacked against them yeah sure i would say that frogs are in many ways the most biom well they're amongst the most uh what's the word their functional morphology their their biomechanics is so specialized and uh, amongst the most specialized of vertebrates in many ways. And yeah, as you say, that doesn't lend itself to very well to becoming big to start with. Mm. No ribs. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got you to support the torso somehow. You've got to evolve some sort of... Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Re- the fact that they're not wholly, but, pro- but very much, uh, I don't want to say reliant, but the fact that they use cutaneous respiration so much as well, that probably does limit if particularly if you're not using bony ribs to ventilate your lungs which they're not they're using um gular pumping and stuff to yeah uh, pump their lungs um those factors weigh against you evolving large body size unless you again theoretically come up with like you know new structures that allow you to ventilate your lungs and then you stop relying on cutaneous respiration but again why bother i mean you're doing fine at small body size there's thousands of thousands of frogs so uh yeah, yeah it's just like yeah well you could do it but you'd have to evolve a whole suite of characters to do it and many novelties which is of course not impossible but when you're competing in a world with animals that already have those things and have been evolving for millions of years in those niches then it just becomes very difficult the opportunity has not probably not arisen, right? Yes. So I basically think that's the answer. Um, but I will say that there is a fascinating picture on deviant art of a uh, like parallel world um, speculative neurons. It's really nice, and I don't know. I don't know who did it. I'm trying to find it now. Yeah, because I'm trying to imagine like we, we live back in the Mesozoic and people were saying mammals. What are they all about? Why haven't they done anything? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little ratty you know, things. Yeah, why are they all yeah. just little ratty things? And but I think then, we come up with similar ideas, but of course, m- the mammals ooh. got a tremendous opportunity. Well, yeah, well. On the other hand, though, I think that I have had this discussion with people before. You could you look at 
like say you know stem mammals like early placentals and stuff could you look at them and say that well potentially potentially they could do this do that i, I don't know because that's obviously we're gifted with hindsight oh we'd never guess what particular yeah. it would take but i can imagine that you could sit and say well i can sort of imagine a a mammal that had got as big as a hadrosaur and was eating some plants yeah right? yeah okay. yeah i just googled deviant art speculative evolution and neurons frogs and the first hit is this image by someone who has the internet savvy name of trollmans <laughs> Trollmans, Age of Frog, a parade of anurans from a wide range of clades. There is so much spec zoo stuff on DeviantArt. It's terrifying, but this is really nice. Yeah, check it out if you can. It's got um, like flying, f- like trop- properly flying, like bat-winged frogs and giant whale frogs. And there's a thing that looks like a hammerhead titanothere from Avatar. And a load of other giant frogs. So it's quite an entertaining picture. I like it very much. And Trollman's, um, if that is their real name, their avatar is uh, Naser Beams. You know, from the Stumpkers. As they say in German. Okay. 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 Answered. Back of uh, the net. <laughs> Oh my god, there's still so many questions. Yeah, what thanks, we Joseph. Yeah, we've got to keep going, keep going. Okay, so this is from Matthew White. Opinions on the original Walking with Dinosaurs series. Sorry, the Walking with series. Dinosaurs, <clears throat> beasts, etc. Childhood tal- talisman, so please go gentle. <laughs> Easy on them if that is possible. Oh, you haven't heard us speak before, have you, Matthew? What do I think of Walking with Dinosaurs? Uh, I liked it. I think it's good. What about you? Um, Kidding. Yeah, before we get into Steiner. specifics, I, I didn't watch Walking with Beasts. Um, I've seen all of them. Yeah. Walking with... Swimming with Sea Monsters, Walking with Beasts, Nigel Marvin Returns, <laughs> Nigel Meets the Nigel meets the Giant Claw, uh, Prehistoric Park. Yeah. Also, I haven't seen it for, well, easily ten years. Uh, well, I watched it on a regular basis, all of them. Mm. And then I only watched it once, Kidding. I think. All right. You probably did watch them over and over again, though, because that's the sort of thing you do. Yeah, it's me all over. Um, um, yeah, so, yeah, you want to go in for some opinion here? Well, okay, I'll say to start with that anything that's got Nigel Marvin in it, oh, sorry, fans of Nigel Marvin, but all of those were terrible, really terrible, just... I don't even know what you're talking about with this Nigel oh, Marvin. Oh, Nigel Marvin. Oh, I've seen this before. Oh, yes. They, there's several. Oh, there's also Walking with Cavemen, which was oh, just terrible. That was that was a big mistake. Um, I, I can understand okay. they, wanted, they wanted to like keep going with the format. Well, okay, let's forget all that then, because let's just go with the... the the, the canon the, the canon ones yeah exactly yeah. walking with dinosaurs and walking with beasts forget everything after that yeah i should say i currently work for the company that produced these so but no it's nothing i haven't said before um so walking with dinosaurs now in terms of um cg innovation and all that sort of stuff it's one of those things where you look at it you look at it today and it really doesn't stand up. It has not stood the test of time. Walking with dinosaurs today looks pretty ropey. The animals 
they're really uh, sort of stilted and shiny. They don't fit into their environment. There's some fundamental sort of mistakes in terms of how the animals are put together. Like some of the animals look like they've taken two different designs and stuck them together. And that's because they literally did mm. because, but I think we have to be slightly kind to them on all those things because um, doing this thing for a TV, you know, doing a thing that you'd normally do with a, a, a movie budget and doing it for a TV series when they did not have a movie budget, they had like a hundredth of a movie budget, um, they fudged and bodged and did the best they could and looked at it in that way. And of course, they opened the doors to this and then a million other people did it so much so that now you can't do it anymore. It's been overdone. Um, so sort of to a degree hats off to them. I mean, they did try very hard. They, like all these people that make these kinds of things, they, uh, it sounds mean, but I'm going to say it anyway, they don't use the right people. They don't talk to the right people. So they invent creatures and then they'll go and ask their experts and their experts say, yeah, that's good enough. But then if you actually talk to the right people, like the look of Tyrannosaurus, the look of the head of a pterosaur, the skin texture of a, of a plesiosaur, all those kinds of things. It's like, why did you do it that way? When we know in actual fact that should be there, that holds for that. The muscle goes there, not there. We have got this skin impression, you know, these kinds of things. Um, I think there's lots of mistakes like that, which is partly because, as usual, they're not getting the right kind of advice from the right kind of people. It's difficult to get right when you're doing these things. You can't know everything. You can't know everyone. But... Um, yeah uh things again a lot of things done on the cheap by necessity that's not a criticism they had to do it that way or, or they wouldn't have ever done it at all yeah uh so I, mean, I kind of agree i have a lot of problems with it but i have fewer problems with walking dinosaurs than the vast majority of dinosaur documentaries that get made right i mean it was it was a well-intentioned and a reasonably well-pulled-off stab at this thing, right? I think. And I, yeah, so being too critical of it. And also what they pulled off, as you were saying, is that what they pulled off with the budget was actually fairly extraordinary, you know, considering it wasn't it's, that long after Jurassic Park and yeah. it had more footage than Jurassic Park in it and it looked almost as good. Yeah, some of it looks great. Some of it does. Yeah, and so... um yeah, I think that was, uh, yeah, uh, in many ways, they deserve a lot of credit for that. What I don't like about it is, yeah, the, a lot of the artistic decisions about, well, is it artistic? It's, as you say, it's a combination of artistry and their advice, but their dinosaurs are really freaking weird mm. looking and very, a weird combination of shrink wrapping and flab which is not at all the way. <laughs> well, it doesn't look, they don't look like animals to me, a lot of them. Mm. Um, they, you know, the, the Tyrannosaurus is particularly odd-looking. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page here, and they've got the Tyrannosaurus model uh, the, with the ear and the, you know, the temporal fenestra and sort of basic mistakes like this. But also, you can see a lot of the fenestra and the... Um, the Eustreptospondylus model is really, really ugly and mm, odd, mm. and there's missing basic muscles in the head, um, and yet you can see all the little things. The 
pterosaurs sort of they didn't put really fur on them and like we kind of know they had fur you know like yeah got got this wrong but again to be fair to them they're talking to people who told them exactly the opposite of all the stuff you've just said yeah, so, so I guess what is the who are we criticizing? Yeah, who are we criticizing yeah. here though? Okay, yeah, so obviously the the documentary filmmakers and the the animators mm. maybe aren't to, entirely to blame for this sort of stuff. I agree, but Walking with like, Dinosaurs as a project, including yeah. its advisors, yeah, um, did have some. And I think it's particularly in this weird appearance of the animals. I do think this was a yep. not not great. Not a great effort. I was involved in this from the start because one of the main um, promoters and pushers of it right from the the pilot episode was Dave Martell, who's my PhD supervisor. So I was seeing the stuff uh, as it was, uh, as it was, uh, yeah, sort of happening. And and, uh, don't get me wrong, no input, no control whatsoever. I was just getting to see these things as they were happening. And uh, they did, their pilot was a marine one because the one that evolved into the life in the Jurassic Seas or whatever it's called, because they made a decision that that's the cheapest thing to start with because you're just showing animals in a blue sea. You don't have yeah. to worry about landscape and everything. And, um, yeah, and there were discussions then about what sort of noises pliosaurs might make and whether how, whether they could – how they would use their nostrils and whether they would come onto land and all that sort of thing. But, um, but with all these projects, um, they, they're building creatures based – to the best of their abilities, based on what they see in books, like your Marshall Cavendish Encyclopedia of Dinosaurs, your David Norman books or whatever. And then they're showing it to their list of experts, which includes a list of august British paleontologists. And they say, oh, yeah, very good, very good, yeah. <laughs> so, so, that, so there you go. Okay. Oh, so it doesn't bother you that the ear is in the, yeah, as you said, the supertemporal fenestra, or that it's got no posterior pterygoideus musculature, or that so yeah. they just didn't... Again, without without hating on paleontologists too much, you're dealing with people who don't know that stuff because that's not their field of expertise. Most people who are qualified and employed in paleontology have got no interest in the life appearance of animals, which is the stuff that is the lifeblood of a project life walking with dinosaurs. And it's, it's hard to imagine if they were reading a bit of a text which was a description which said that the ear is in the temporal fenestra. They would go, yeah, yeah, that's fine. They'd say, no. No, that's mm. wrong. That's wrong. No. You know. Yeah. So it's somehow it's forgivable if it's visual. Yeah. But if it was written down, they would be picking on this stuff. Yeah, but it's not written down, is it? It's just look at look at this. What do you think of this? Oh, that's great. That's yeah, I know. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. They actually, yeah. they actually do know some of this stuff. Yeah. But for some reason, they just chuck it out when it's visually represented. Um, yes. Or I mean, to be fair, a lot of these things, I don't want to be too, too hard on. Mm-hmm. Um, advisors to television shows because a lot of the time you say something and they just chuck it out. It gets lost. You know, whether they deliberately chuck it out or it just doesn't quite make it into the animation and people forget. Yeah. There's no yeah, list yeah. of things to do and then people forget. You know, someone didn't take a note of that. You know, these things get lost in large projects. Yeah. Uh, as as someone who, you know, a thing I do a lot is I act as a consultant on kids' books and, and, and TV shows and stuff. And there's loads of things that get past me because I don't notice them at the time or I notice them before it's too late. It's like, well, we can't change the hands now. Hmm. Like I've just done a kid's book, a, a stickers. Uh, I was a consultant for a Osborne sticker book for kids and it looks really good. I've, I've shared pictures on social media, you know, really attractive looking dinosaurs. But we've got that criminal 
problem of not of having the the feathers on a dromaeosaur's hand as if they're separate from the clawed fingers. Yeah. Oh my god! I only noticed that after the artist had done it, and by then it's too late to fix it. And and this that that is a factor. Um, I also wanted to say I'm walking. This is a fault of artists as well, right? Yeah. Because um, with scientific illustration like this, um, there's not really an excuse these days to be working in an uncorrectable medium. And if you do, I think you've got to have a way of correcting it, right? <laughs> so. Mm. You know, sorry, sorry, sorry. Dry now. Yeah, no, <laughs> sorry, Mister Artist. Learn how to use Photoshop then, because well. um, yeah. But I, d- I think that there is blame here for the artist to share. Because okay, maybe you want to work predominantly in acrylics, but if you've got a correction like, well, we need another feather further down so that it covers this finger and it looks like the feathers are coming from the fingers. Yes, that's utterly trivial, trivial in Photoshop. You know, true, and true. therefore. Um, I think that artists need to be more on their game as well. Yeah, stupid artists. So, <laughs> other thing about sorry, going back to walking with dinosaurs, um, the 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 big problem of okay, there's, there's I would say there's two big problems with making a series like this. First of all, is the look of the animals. I think we've just covered that. But the second thing is story. Now mm. they can't just make a documentary about like life in the Morrison formation animals with let's go and look at the Morrison formation. Oh look, there's a Stegosaurus walking along eating a little bit. There's a Diplodocus walking along eating a little bit. There's an Allosaurus. It's asleep. <laughs> Time. Yeah. Oh, they can't do that. They have to have Johnny the Allosaurus is going on a quest to find a magic rune stone and he gets in a battle with another with a uh, he falls in love. He <laughs> discovers a baby Stegosaurus and they they team up for a while and they become chums, but but then an angry Torvosaurus comes along and starts a fight with the Stegosaurus and blah, blah, blah. They have to have these complex stories. And um, they, uh, walking with dinosaurs, the thing I didn't like about it is they, they had to put in all these complexities and nuances. And I know from, bear in mind, I know all the people behind this stuff, you know, Tim Haynes and so on. And, they say, well, what we, what we often want to do is we want to give people this, a sort of uh, like a flavor or a taste, a thing. Of, you know, if you see a plesiosaur swimming to the water, they'll deliberately like model it on a seal because then it will just register as, oh, that makes sense to me. Or if you're seeing like a, an allosaurus running, it will have an aspect of a lion to it or something. You know, they think, though, it's got to have because it will just remind you. It may feel real to you biologically. But this means that they they – take things that they know from the modern world and then uh, just have their fossil animals doing those things. So there's loads of cases in Walking with Dinosaurs more than the other series. But Walking with Dinosaurs especially, they took cool behaviours from living animals and just like had the fossil animals doing them. And uh, there are so many times when that just doesn't work because – I said this at 1999, back when the series came out. It's like, yeah, but we've got, like... It's particularly frustrating when you know we've got, like... Okay, we don't never know as much as we would like to, but we know a few things about the behaviour and ecology of given extinct species, and they didn't touch on any of that. Instead, they had uh, the animals basically playing out a scene that you'd seen in another documentary. So my favourite example, I've mentioned this many times before, apologies to people who've heard it before, is there's a small dinosaur in their Spirits of the Ice Forest episode, a small dinosaur called Lealinosaurus, 
It's like an ornithopod type thing. And uh, they have them behaving like meerkats, as like sort of living in little happy groups and sort of like one of them's a sentry and they sleep in a big pile and all these things that just seem very meerkatty. And that's because, you know, they wanted a social animal that behaves in a complex certain way. I don't know, we'll model it on that kind of thing. But it's like, yeah, but Leonidasaurus is not a brilliant example because we don't know much about it, but there's a whole list of other things that we think we, that we infer or we think we know about the behavior and ecology of dinosaur of that sort that would paint quite a different picture. And just, I thought that, I thought you could see them doing that again and again. They would, they would take like what a living animal does and just superimpose it on the fossil ones just to make a sexy story. Yeah. um, It's a shame in many ways that they haven't, didn't make it more recently because I think it was probably one of the better attempts at this sort of thing. So that sort of effort put in more recently when we know more about some of these behaviours, like burrowing dinosaurs and things, like things we know now that are really interesting. It's yeah. a shame that that sort of thing didn't make it in. But have you seen, oh, is it Dinosaur Revolution? We spoke about this before on the podcast. Dinosaur Revolution, a four-part American documentary produced by Creative Differences. Uh, the dinosaurs in this looked really good. They were um, designed by uh, David Krentz. We had a whole episode where we were discussing the fact that I got his name wrong. And um, it had some silly behavior in it, but it also had some semi-plausible behavior, I think. I think I remember. It's a long time since I've seen it. Um, So there have been more recent attempts to do the same kind of thing. Yeah. And what was the other thing I wanted to say? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Again, we've touched on, we've covered this as well before. Someone should, someone should do a, a walking with dinosaurs supercut from the Tetsu podcast because we've covered the same stuff again and again and again. <laughs> they, one of the things they keep on doing in walking with dinosaurs, again more so than walking with beasts in the other series, is they have like a hero character, and then they keep on having this idea that your main character is an individual who's who's been around for decades. This huge beast has lived here for a thousand years. He is the last of his kind. Bear in mind, those outside the UK that are listening to this, it was narrated by Kenneth Branagh here in the UK. Uh, I don't know who they had other narrators in other countries, but um, yeah, it's it, it was it was always. I mean, bear in mind that most evidence now indicates that Mesozoic dinosaurs and pterosaurs are sort of everything about them is like live fast die young basically you know an old tyrannosaurus is like 30 years old um whereas they're positing every single one of them as he has lived here for a hundred years <laughs> his body racked by age yeah. um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and i also last time we spoke about this i also did that thing where um he is the last of his kind. And then, and then, suddenly, a huge herd of, of thousands of the bloody things appears over the hill. It's the yeah. same for the pterosaur, the ornithocyrus, the same for the placerius, and many, many others. I think the problem here, and we should move on to the next question very soon, but yeah, uh, a lot of the story stuff is that reality doesn't map very well to a story and 
science in particular does not map to stories very well. And therefore, all documentaries suffer from this sort of thing. There's this oversimplification of an arc or trying to inject some sort of drama into it, which means fudging facts or whatever. You know, it's always a problem. It's not just walking with dinosaurs, but, you know, it's always there. And also stories are stupid, too. You know, we complain about this in fiction a lot. Well, you don't, but I do. There's <laughs> <laughs> the same stupid stories over and over and over again. Um, yes. Anyway, so let's move on to the next one. Yep. Um, thanks, Ma- thanks, Matthew, for that question. Thanks, Matt. I hope we weren't too rough on it. Yeah. Um, Vivera? 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 Leaky Eye. Why yeah. did... Uh, Viverids? Viverids? Viverids. 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 Civets and things. Viverids. Never get bigger. And why did this mid-sized predator lose out to other members of the carnivora? Today we are left with viverids that only reaching up to 20 kilos. All appear to be highly omnivorous and none are the apex predator of their ecosystems. What's the answer, Darren? I've got a good answer. Oh, yeah, I'll just just say briefly to those people who haven't heard of Vivera leaky eye, leaky's, leaky's giant civet. It's a fossil civet, really big compared to living ones. It's from, I think it's known from a few sites in East Africa, um, f- from the Miocene, I think. Um, it's meant to be, I, compared to living civets, it's huge. It's, it's like, uh, well, I, I can't remember ever reading specific, um, like measurements on it, but it's meant to be something like sort of two meters long, whereas living ones, you know, generally less than a meter long and like size of a size of a, a small big cat, mm. like a small leopard, that, that kind of thing. In terms of why viverids haven't done, oh, so it's more than twice as big as the biggest living ones. Um, yeah. Why did they never get bigger? Why did mid-sized predators lose out? Oh, 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 what do you think? What were you going to say? Cats. Yeah, but there were cats back then as well. Loads of them. See, this was... Yeah, so we've got an example of what? (laughs) One one medium-sized sort of civet. Yeah. And how many big cats were around then? Probably dozens. Loads. Yeah, loads. So, yeah, cats have always been winning in that size class. Right. Yeah. So the fact that you get the occasional freak. So what? <laughs> freak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But so, you know, cats are just better at that that size. Yeah. Well, th- th- that was my immediate thinking is that, yeah, it's just just living in communities where... I mean, there's... Again, this, this goes back to what we were saying earlier about the Miocene being the heyday of mammals. It does seem that there were far more ecological opportunities available to them whereas these have reduced now for whatever reason there's like less species of mid-sized and big carnivores um today and during the Playa Pleistocene than they were in the Miocene but yeah why haven't the Verids grown that big again they just haven't it's just a thing of history (laughs) well I you know a lot of these things I think we can sum up the answer is that they're already filled by things that are really good at that thing right to invade mm. another clade's space means you either have to have an opportunity, for some reason that cats are absent, right, and you get to fill that niche, mm. or you have to be somehow get better at something to get the angle on them, <laughs> which is just really tricky. And I don't, you know, I think that 
there's there's a stickiness to evolution in this respect that once you get there and start evolving and spreading into those niches and it's difficult to oust you unless you've got a, unless something else has got an edge and it's going to be especially difficult for something that's really similar in many ways it's not like you know it's easy to imagine I'm trying to think of an example, but things that don't look very similar but compete for the same resources, it's more easy to imagine one of them getting a competitive advantage and wiping out the other one. Hmm. Or something, you know, because now, when they're already so similar, what are, the, what are they going to do? <clears throat> Vivera Leakii... Uh, seems to have, based on the fossil record, seems to have originated during the late Miocene. Now, crown cats originated during the Miocene. Um, I don't think it was as recent as the late Miocene. I think it was like a bit earlier in the Miocene. We're talking about something like 20 million years ago for an origin of crown cats, modern groups of cats. So it could be that in the late Miocene, we're still in relatively early stages of cats diversifying, taking on the you know the sort of forms that we think of today, but interestingly, Viverlichii persists throughout the whole of this time up until the Pleistocene. It seems that it's around for a long time. The fact that it's around for that time may well this this obviously shows us that viverids can occupy this mid-sized. Apparently, it's apparently hypercarnivorous based on its dentition, Viverlichii. Um, they can occupy this niche alongside cats. This could prevent other viverids from taking up the niche if, because Viverlichii is also widespread. It's uh, well, okay. It's what I think. I think it's known quite from numerous sites in eastern Africa. So maybe its presence is preventing other members of this group from um, from evolving. Uh, yeah, large size taking on this hypercarnivorous niche. They're, they're doing fine at sticking with small size and omnivory. And and as as crown cat lineages diversify during the late Miocene and the Pleistocene, um, it's not like Vivra Leakii is uh, seemingly a flash in the pan that's like gone within a million years. It's around for quite a long time. So... Um, Yeah. Yeah. You need to you need to edit this. This is a mess. <laughs> what, what I'm what I'm vaguely trying to explain is is so its presence could exp- first of all its presence means that viverids could become large hypercarnivores and they did and then this thing this lineage was a success and it was around for a long period of time. But so long as it's around, then other members of its group aren't gonna like take its place. Hmm. But it's outclassed in terms of like ability to adapt to grass and environments, and assuming that it's similar to viverids in general in being like a an animal mostly of forested environments, uh, not running down like wildebeest and stuff. It's not able to, you know, take on that kind of. Yeah, so we might be niche. looking at something that's got a fairly specialised niche that's widespread. You know, it's something it's mm. doing in particular, but it is available in lots of places. But maybe it doesn't support a large diversity of animals in that niche. Maybe that is where they could have spread, and it, and they did, and that was it. Yeah. Um, 
and we should say there there were there were other really big um like non cat uh, uh uh carnivorans that were alive in the same area about the same time there's a there's a famous giant african mustelid called echorus mm-hmm. echorus i don't know how you, how you say it but that's like a sort of cat mimicking mustelid that uh is probably not that different in size. No, it would be somewhat bigger than than Viverlikii. But um, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I, I don't. We we don't. Basically, okay. We don't know. Nobody knows what the interplay is between these animals and and early crown cats. But um, but the fact that they are Viverlikii and Echoros are. Uh, sort of one-off lineages that didn't diversify, whereas cats did diversify. Mm. Uh, several large species in the uh, Miocene, Pliocene, and Pleistocene. I don't know. Does it suggest some? Plus, there are dogs and hyenids uh, as well doing things. There's a lot of action, a lot of stuff going on in East Africa during the Neogene. Mm. Mm. I only have the vaguest and 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 woolliest of uh, kind of things to say there. But uh, yeah, well, I think that's all that can be said, really. Um, yeah. So what? So Stephen specifically says, why did they never get bigger? Um, why did this mid-sized predator lose out to other members of the carnivora? Well, I would say we don't know that it lost out. I mean, because if it was around from the Miocene to the Pliocene, that's pretty respectable. That's not that. As for why it didn't survive to the modern to modern times, I don't know, uh, and I, I don't know any, anyone does. Presumably, it you know was unable to adapt to whatever climatic or um, ecological changes happened in Africa during the Pleistocene. Lots of things became extinct, but uh, so but it seems to have been doing you know around for a long time, known from numerous sites. Numerous sites. Mm. Um, why did they never get bigger? Well, another one of those things where would we definitely expect that they would get bigger? I mean, what's wrong with being like the size of a leopard? That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, big cats, uh, size of a leopard, that's pretty big, right? So yeah. there's only, what, lions and tigers bigger than that, really? I mean, a few, few saber teeths, spider yeah. on homotherium. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a smattering, though, isn't it? I mean, it's not the majority yeah. by any means. It's not like that's the advantageous size to be, is Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I would say, given that they tend to cluster around that size, cats, I don't know, don't know, that's, uh, the biggest cats tend to be. It might be reaching the limit of that plan. Well, the majority of cats are small. Yeah, yeah. there's there's about thirty three extant cat species, and uh, with the exception of the big cats, including the clouded leopard and the the cheetah, they're they're all smaller than lynxes. Mm. <laughs> Does that make sense? Okay, <laughs> with the exception of lynxes, no, ah, whatever. They're yeah, whatever. Small. Yeah. They're mostly below lynx size. Yeah. So lynx is peak cat. And then uh, <laughs> it's a dumbbell curve, the links in the middle. And uh, no, no, it's not. No, no. most of them are small. Most no. of them are smaller than that. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So, yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, that's that's the answer. So Steve. thank you, Stephen. Sorry, Stephen, that was a bit of a yeah, mess. Bit of a mess. Um. <laughs> Never thought about it before. Well, it's an obscure animal that just is not discussed much. It's only discussed in like one or two papers. Uh, there's this gigantic book called Lothagam which is on this famous site in uh, Kenya, Miocene site, loads of mammals. Um, 
and crocs and birds and stuff there as well. But I think it's from there, Viverlikiai, mm. and from other places as well. All right. So, yep. Thanks for the question. Sorry about the answer. Let's uh, wrap this up then. So, thanks for the cash for questioners. The people that didn't make it in, uh, we're going to go for next episode. Given that we're nearly, we've been recording this episode for two hours and we did an hour and a half episode before this one. Um, So, yeah, uh, stay tuned. And, um, okay, so wrapping up then. Yeah, so thank you to the people who tweeted and Facebook during the recording. I said I'd do some shout-outs. So, Marie Butts, thank you. The Duck Life, if that is your real name. Uh, Phil Terry, uh, Richard Nicklin, and, <laughs> and Ray Hoser. Thanks, Ray. Oh, Jesus Christ, Ray. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Seriously, okay. a tweet came in while, I, while we were recording. And uh, sorry, let me just look at Facebook as well because uh, uh, sorry, it's just loading. <laughs> Phil, some, Paul, yeah. Hanukkah Meyer, Marcus Buller. Marcus, I'll be interested in which art and research project you're working on at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, first of all, John and I both desperately, this is, this is a mention from, oh, I don't sorry, I don't have the wording right. Basically, we both need your support at Patreon. Yeah. To keep I'm doing at, what we do. Keep doing what we do. It ain't going to work without no monies. Um, I'm at uh, patreon.com forward slash tetzu, I think. Yep. And uh, go there and see development of the stuff for the big textbook I'm working on. And it does mostly involve fish, but it's not just fish. There's, there's, <laughs> there's some other animals tucked away in there every now and again. John's on Patreon as well. Yep, forward slash John Conway. Um. Yeah, and I I upload stuff there that you can't see elsewhere. You can see stuff from, uh, you can see things from uh, the second cryptozoologicon there. The occasional oh, yeah. thing, yeah. yeah which is so going to be secret out. stuff. Secret stuff for pa- patrons. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we should also say we've got so Tetsucon. Is it this is the third Tetsucon? Isn't it happening uh, this? October 1st mm-hmm. at the London Wetland Centre. Uh, thrilling day of um, stuff involving uh, relevant stuff and uh, merchandise and everything. Um, we've also got a couple of other events coming up in September and October, which we're not allowed to talk about yet, but uh, they'll be Aren't very... We? We're not allowed to talk about them? Not yet. Okay. No. Uh, tickets for Tetsucon will be on sale at tetsu.com slash convention. Mm. Yep. Right. I tweet at I am not a committee at Tetsu and visit the Tetsu Facebook page and buy Hunting Monsters available as an ebook, which I've now mentioned probably the last several three or four episodes. Did I mention this new tape here? <laughs> yeah. Is it in that book? It is. Talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enough of this.
Uncle Darren's anecdotes. During the latter part of the 1990s, I lived in the small riverside community known as Wolston, a location made notable for its presence of a hovercraft terminal and an enormous toll bridge constructed during the 1970s and known locally as the New Bridge. It was in the shadow of that bridge and adjacent to that hovercraft terminal that I discovered a small shingle beach, but 10 metres wide, that frequently yielded the bones and other remains of local animals. Over the course of several years, I made a habit of visiting the beach on a weekly basis, eventually amassing a large collection of bones belonging to diverse animals. Seabirds, waterfowl, domestic chickens, foxes, rabbits, cattle, sheep and pigs. These remains clearly had diverse and curious origins that cannot be divulged here today. Among my most thrilling discoveries was the heavily decomposed carcass of a domestic cat, consisting of the better part of the skeleton, but still held tightly together thanks to a substantial quantity of adhering soft tissues. The soft tissues were all but useless and had to go, but how could they be removed? They were tightly adherent indeed. And so it was that my excellent friend and office mate, Stig Walsh, made the novel suggestion that we might use his old and redundant mic wave oven as a clever and efficient way of removing the adhering tissue ever one to experiment with the destruction of animal carcasses anew and bowing to Stig's evidently superior experience in the technique concern. I arrived at Stig's house on a pleasant autumnal evening, decomposing cat carcass to hand. The technique which Stig had pioneered involving the placing of the carcass within a warm bowl of water before repeatedly microwaving it. We chopped the cat into manageable microwavable portions. And proceeded to treat them one at a time within the oven. Over the ensuing hours, the dried and ugly soft tissue softened and parted from the bones, leaving us with pristine white cat bones. The experiment was a remarkable success, as can be easily verified today through examination of my excellent cat bone collection. There was one drawback. The smell of hot dead cat was unbearably terrible. <laughs> 